0: Welcome to the Heart of the Father podcast. We're glad you're here and able to listen in. We're praying the Lord will speak to your heart through this message and that you be transformed more and more into the image of Christ. I was prepared to share this message a month ago, and the service got preempted by the Holy Spirit, so we're always glad for that. People always tell me after those services, that was the best message you ever preached. I said, because I didn't preach it. Um, So, but I had this message, it's just interesting with the timing, because obviously that was way before Ian was even a little cloud off of the coast of Africa, Um, but the title of the message is Living Ready. And I felt as I prayed into it, the Lord wanted me to share it, essentially, the same message. Um... I think weather and storms uh, reveal to us the illusion of control that we think we have. Um, I've often thought that meteorology is a really good gig because they make really good money and they don't have any accountability for accuracy whatsoever. Um, You know, 50% rain chance, bullseye every time, every time, okay, I can do that. Nevertheless, not throwing meteorologists under the bus, but we, we don't control these things, right? So Ian's going this way, it's going that way, and here's the cone, and then the cone's bigger than the state of Florida, but then we can turn the cone and make it, make it work. So here's the thing. We're not in control, but we are in the care of a Father who is omnipotent, omnipresent, and all-loving, and we can rest in His care. He cares for us. I've been thinking, so living ready for the master. Um, Luke chapter 12 is the text we're going to go to eventually when we get there. I want to talk about eternity. I want to talk about living in the light of eternity because that's how we're supposed to live. Have you ever thought about all of the warnings and exhortations in Scripture to be alert, be sober, be vigilant? Always be watching, be ready. Jesus said over and over again, he's talking about the end times in Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21, other places as well. And so often he repeats those phrases, be ready, watch, be careful. Why? Well, he knew his coming wasn't going to happen like that soon. He might not have known the day or the hour then, but certainly he does now. Why? Why? Well, brother, I just don't believe Jesus is coming right away. Well, you might be right, and you might not be. But either way, you're going to go to him soon. You're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ to account for your life and everything that you have done and the decisions that you've made and the choices that you've made, because eternity looms for all of us. It's in this last few months, I've either been part of the funeral of two of them and attended, um, the, the one I wasn't able to go to, but friends that I have known for 45 years, 40 years and 35 years, had deep relationship with. They've all gone to be with Jesus, and all of them are within a year of my age. Two of them younger, one seven months older. And so it makes me think, I mean, I'm glad for them because they knew the Lord and they know the Lord. And their mind was blown, and I picture them standing before Jesus for that first look. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. I want to see the video of this. Uh, mind blown. He's so much greater than what we know of him. Even our highest worship. There's that passage in Second Thessalonians that talks about how when Jesus comes back again, he's going to come back to bring retribution on those who re- in rebellion against him. And he's going to be... Held in awe by those who know him. That's us. When Jesus returns, everybody's going to go, you are so much greater than what I knew or thought or could comprehend. We only know a little bit. He's amazing and he's glorious. And so to prepare and to talk about eternity is always a good idea. Starting up, before we get into Luke chapter 12, let's talk about identity. Identity this is a big subject in the body of Christ let's talk about our identity as believers in Jesus for just a minute I see it as being two halves of a wheel there are those parts of identity that talk about our authority our privilege our intimacy with Jesus and that's beautiful and we need that right how many say amen and then there's those parts of identity which talk about our responsibility and our accountability to Jesus. And those are equally as important. Would you say amen to that as well? Okay, so we need the whole wheel, right? If we just have the one part and all I want to do is talk about, which I love this and I preach on this, if you've been around very long, you know I do, our The reality of our authority in Christ, our connection with him, our oneness with him, how powerful that is, the love of Christ that we're in the son of his love, all of those things are so powerful and necessary. But if we don't have the other part as well, we're not going to roll down the road. We're going to get stuck. We have to have both. So discipleship is really the other part. And that includes different components that we're going to look at today. They're not preached on very often. So brace yourself for awkwardness and uncomfortability today. Um, If you're okay with that, you're probably used to that with me a little bit. I believe firmly that nothing eternal comes out of comfort zones. And so we'll try to blow those up right away if we can. We need both sides of the wheel. As I read Scripture, it is the responsibility and accountability parts that will be the most important when we stand before Him on that day. Because He's going to ask us what we did with what He gave us. So we need to be mindful of that. The mission of the church is to make... Let's try again. The mission of the church is to make... Disciples. Disciples. And, and what is a disciple? A disciple is a radical idea. In the New Testament, what Jesus portrays as being the disciple, the one who follows him, is very radical. If you want to be my disciple, you have to take up your cross every day and follow me. Well, the only thing that came to the mind of the disciples when they heard that was... They had seen people crucified. They didn't know people were going to wear crosses around their neck as being a decoration and as a sign of affection for Jesus. All they knew was, crucified? They had seen the Romans crucify hundreds and even thousands of rebels against the Roman Empire and put them strategically along the main streets, crucified, so that would be a loud shouting message to everybody. If you rebel against Rome, this is what you get. Imagine the astonishment of the disciples. We numb all this down in our mind because we know the other side of the cross. Imagine the disciples hearing that for the first time. If you don't take up your cross every day and follow me, you can't be my disciple. And just to let you know, discipleship is not a higher echelon of Christianity. To be a disciple is to be a Christian, and to be a Christian is to be a disciple. The words are used interchangeably in the New Testament. And this is by far the largest, if you go by sheer numbers in the New Testament, discipleship and being a disciple is mentioned 260 times. How many times is sonship mentioned? If you go by sheer numbers, I'm not saying it's not important, it's totally important. But I think he puts numbers in there to bring emphasis. This is your starting point. This is where you got to grasp this idea of being a disciple. And so I believe in Western culture, especially in America, we don't, believe, we don't know what it means to be a disciple. We know what it means to be a convert. We know what it means to be a church member. But we don't understand the concept of discipleship, which is what the church is called to do. We're not called to fill our chairs. We're called to make disciples, those who are radically sold out to Jesus as his followers. I would love to read all the verses where Jesus talked about what discipleship entails. Sum it up like this. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote this book called Call to Discipleship. And the beginning of that book is, when Christ bids a man come to him, he calls him to come and die. That's about true. Take up your cross daily. If you don't give up everything you have, Jesus said in Luke 14, you can't be my disciple. If you don't love me more than you love father, mother, brothers, sisters, and this is where it really gets down to, it, okay? Father, mother, brothers, sisters, okay, I can live with that. Wife, can't live with that. Children, no, but yes. And even your own life, you can't be mine disciple. How many thousands of problems this would solve in the Christian life if we would get this sense of our identity firmly rooted with the other, yes, but get this firmly rooted that when Jesus tells us to do something, the fact that we're his disciples means that when he says something, we say, yes, Lord, we obey and we do that thing. And it is a priority of our life no matter what it costs. You see that with the disciples in the early church, don't you? Paul's on his way to Jerusalem. The prophetic churches are everywhere in the New Testament. And all along the way, Paul's stopping at the churches and they're all prophesying over him, saying, you're going to go to Jerusalem, but please don't go because bonds and afflictions await you there. It's not going to be good. You're going to suffer. And Paul says, why are you weeping and breaking my heart like this? I'm not only ready to go to Jerusalem, but also to die for the Lord Jesus. This is what I was made for, to bear witness to him before kings. And I'm going to Nero, and Nero cut his head off for the cause of Christ. And he said that was like a burnt offering and a living sacrifice, a drink offering being poured out at the altar. I know this language we don't like. This language is in the New Testament and fills it. It's not just occasional. This language fills. So this would create a body of radical followers of Jesus. That's how we need to live to be ready for eternity. Let me read you from a scholar whose name is Moses Silva. He's a Greek scholar, very high level New Testament scholar. He's defining this word disciple, okay? Discipleship is the surrendering of our autonomy. This is so important. Because my um, perception and observation, again, y'all, I love you, is that Western Christians, we haven't surrendered our autonomy we still have our agenda we're running. We're just asking Jesus to help us to run it better. We're not taking our dreams and our agendas. I preached a message at a um, graduation one time. It went over like a Led Zeppelin, not very good. But the message was exchange your vision, because, you know, there, there's a saying there's lies, and then there's damned lies, and then there's graduation speeches. Um, So so we're telling these graduates, you can be anything you want to be. I know I heard it myself. I heard it from my mother. She lied to me. But um, (laughs) you can do anything. You can, you know, whatever you set your mind to do, you can do it and all that. And it's not true. So I'm encouraging these graduates Lay your vision aside, whatever you think it is at your age. It might not be fully cooked yet. It's okay. Put it to the side. If you have passions, that's okay. Put it to the side. But take God's vision up, which is Philippians chapter 3. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. That I may be made conformable to his death. They they didn't like that. That wasn't inspiring at all. No, I've got a vision. I'm going to be... It's okay. Disciples of Jesus, they're they're surrendering their autonomy. It implies acceptance of Christ himself, rejection of the old existence and the beginning of a new life in him. Following Jesus as a disciple means the unconditional sacrifice of one's whole life. To be a disciple means to be bound to Jesus and to do God's will. If we had that understanding really rooted in us, then it would take a lot of decisions off of the table where we wrestle with things. I've wrestled with decisions. I've wrestled really hard with the Lord, but my own autonomy was still in place, and that was my problem. So the the older that I've gotten and the longer I walk with Jesus, I'm not saying I never had the wrestles. I do, but they're a lot less because I know That what I have signed up for is this is what I've already agreed to. He said, here's the deal. I'm going to give you my whole kingdom, but you give me everything you've got. Everything. Everything. Your dreams. Your autonomy. Your ability to make your own path forward. In fact, your own body doesn't even belong to you. I shouldn't go very far into that. You're bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body, which is him, it belongs to him, right? James chapter four says, woe to you now who say, we're gonna go into this town and do this thing, they've got their five-year plan working. We're gonna do this, we're gonna build this, we're gonna make this happen. He goes, what are you talking about? All such boasting is evil. You should say rather, If the Lord wills, why? Because I already cashed all my chips in. I don't have a five-year plan unless he makes it. I don't have my own agenda unless he gives it. I don't have my own plan unless he sanctions it and births it. I've tried in business, and I won't go too far into this because you've all heard of it. Uh, It was was a bad fail. And the Lord showed me one time at a prayer meeting, Sister Marie was there. They said, let's all pray for Barry in his business because he's struggling. And so we prayed Saturday morning, and I just had this sense like the Lord was resisting me. That's the sense that I had. And, and we're walking out, and of course, that's not what you say when you're faith and power, and you know, like, that's not what you say. Praise God, it's done. Okay, well, I mean, that isn't what I sensed. I wanted to say that, but I didn't want to sense it. I walked out. I looked at Marie. She wasn't looking up at me. I said, hey, what, did you feel anything? Did you get any sense when we were praying there? And she just looked at me like that. I said, well, my sense was that the Lord's resisting me. And she looked at me like, I can't believe that you said that. But it's real. And I knelt down at the seat there in that church. And I said, God, what am I doing I'm not an entrepreneur, I'm I'm called to preach the gospel, right? I mean, this is what you told me when I was a teenager, this is why I abandoned all of my plans to be a pharmacologist and make tons of money and have an easy life. That's what I was going to do, but you said, no, you're going to Bible college. And he said to me by his spirit, he said, this business is a monument to your own nothingness. Now you see what you can do without me. See, that don't preach good, even when I preach it. It doesn't preach good. It didn't preach good to me. But he's trying to deal with my whole issue of autonomy. Like I am the captain of my ship. No, I'm not. I'm not in control. I can't control where the hurricane goes. I'm not in control. But I'm in the hands of the care of my Father who keeps me. But he also, he demands to direct my course as his disciple. This would take so many of the problems off of the table for us if we would actually get this and grasp it really well. We're disciples of Jesus. Discipleship is weak in today's Western church. Why is it weak? Because we treat it like dieting. What does that mean? So I read this article By researchers at UCLA, I don't even know where I got it from. But but I read it and I thought, that's exactly why discipleship fails in in the West. They said, we studied, this is UCLA now. They're not some Christian college, you know, they're secular. They're looking at dieting. So 5 million diet books, talking about mostly weight loss, are sold every year in this country. $60 billion or so. It's a lot of money. It's a big industry, right? You know, why is there new diet books that come out every year? By the hordes. Because the way that we do it is we go, give me the magic pill. Let me take the magic pill. And then after three months, I'm going to lose the 48 pounds I want to lose. And everything's going to be great. And so what they found is, and y'all listen. If you're the skinny person in here that's getting ready to pull your self-righteous card out, put it right back in your pocket. Okay? Because you don't know. This is, this is true now. You don't know the people that are heavier that you see and you think, oh, if they would just eat like I do, they would be thin. You don't know that they might not exercise two times the self-control that you do in what you eat. You just don't have the genetics to get heavy. So put your card back in your pocket. And when you get home, burn it. Because it's, it's all arrogant pride. So listen, God is, not, God is not like the American media. He's not obsessed with body image at all. He's obsessed with heart image. He wants a heart. But this is a pretty good illustration of why discipleship fails. Okay, the dieting. So they study it and they go, here's what they said. It actually, most people would have been better off not going on the diet at all. I'm quoting now from their study. At least two thirds of people on diets regain more weight than they lost within four or five years. This may help explain why so many diets fail and discipleship. Dieting increases. Listen, this is, this is Dieting increases stress sensitivity, and stress makes us seek out rewarding things like high-fat, high-calorie comfort foods. Dieting is tough. Listen to the statement. Dieting, dieting is tough because your brain is working against you. Why? Because we're here. Look, it only works. Right? I think Matt and Sissy will say the amen to this. This is what discipleship is. You... Make the radical shift and change and there's a total shift of mindset and an about face of life and go, no, this is the way I'm going. I have a Lord now. I have a new Lord. Everything I've laid down on the table. If you do that with dieting, it'll be successful. But then it's not dieting. It's a lifestyle change. That's what discipleship is. I'm not going to add something onto my life and go, well, I'm going to do the outreach this week because then I'm going to be a better disciple. No, the issue is I belong to Jesus, every part of me, spirit, soul, and body, all my hopes, dreams, all of my kids. I can tell you something having seven kids, it's not easy to release them to the Lord. You have to do it over and over again. You, you really do. We had that experience on the mission field with our daughter and we saw her living in squalor in a city where they had human trafficking running bigger than Walmart. They literally owned entire apartment complexes where all they did was traffic young girls there and leaders from uh, Spanish-speaking countries, they flew them over there. They had this big palace on top of the hill in the city and it had walls all around it, helicopter pad. World leaders would come there. It was a brothel. Everybody else lives in squalor. The creeks in the town, the little rivers, are got dirty diapers in them and feces. And We took a tour of that town, and we're like, our little girl, our oldest daughter, I called her dearest my whole life. She's going there to live, and our grandkids are going to be born and raised there. And we were shell-shocked, and Diane can tell you this is true. We got down beside the little bed that we were staying at there, And Sasua, we knelt down there and we just cried and wept. We said, Jesus, this is so hard. And he reminded us, this is what you said. When you had those children, when I blessed you, you said, Lord, they're yours. And now I'm coming to collect. But you can trust me because I will take care of them. And we had to wrestle, and we had to settle with that. But this is what discipleship is. I don't own my kids, and so I don't try to control their lives. I want to disciple them, but I don't control their agenda because I want God's agenda for them. So dieting, for discipleship, we're just going to add something on. You know, I used to think this before I radically changed my diet, and I'm no poster boy for this. Really, the credit goes to my wife about 98%. I eat this stuff, but she, she makes it and provides it. That's all that's good. So, but I used to think that I ate really pretty good because I would add broccoli and green beans and carrots and occasionally some other things to my list of comfort foods of Kentucky Fried Chicken and... Um, Mac and cheese, and so I thought, this is good. I'm I'm eating really healthy, and so this is how we play the game in our head. I'm eating healthy because I eat three healthy things, but the rest of my diet of the 90% is actually junk. It's killing me. Um, So discipleship doesn't work that way. Discipleship is the initial commitment of understanding that everything, everything, belongs to Jesus, and we don't turn back from that commitment. This is where you see it happen. I've seen it over the years. I've been around the block a few times where people go through a really hard time. I asked somebody this recently. Why is it that when you go through a really hard time, you turn away from the Lord and go back to drinking and do whatever you know? Why why is that? Because you're mad at him because you went through a hard time. You you forgot what the original commitment was. It's really okay. He doesn't promise us like in the West. We want to be comfortable. Look, we're still without. How many are still without electricity? Okay. See, there's only a handful of us. We're the elite. Um, (laughs) It's hard for us, right? We're pampered. And we pamper ourselves and I'm part of this. This is why we need to talk about this stuff because if we don't talk about the things that actually grip our heart and affect us and make us into idolaters, then what are we doing talking about all the fluffy glory and all that? For real, like, no, we gotta get back to baseline. Go, are we really disciples? Then a lot of this stuff goes away. That's why reading about persecuted believers in other countries is super healthy to see what they walk through and go through. And they do it with a smile and they're laughing and joking about it. I told you it was going to be awkward today. Do you believe me yet? All right, Luke chapter 12. Let's read verses 35 to 48. How are we doing? Not very good on time. Luke 12. I want to start reading at verse 35. It's probably going to get a little more awkward before it gets better. Just putting that out there as a disclaimer. Luke 12, verse 35. This is the Lord Jesus speaking. It is the word of the eternal God that will last beyond all of the earth and heaven. It will never pass away. Here's what he says. Be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps lit. Be ready. Be like men who are waiting. Notice these words, readiness, waiting. Keep your lamps lit. Be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast so that they may immediately open the door to him when he comes and knocks. This is living ready. Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on the alert when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will gird himself and serve and have them recline at the table and will come and wait upon them. Can you fathom this? If we're ready to stand before the Lord, and we have been watching, and we've been on the alert, and we have been faithful to do the things that he told us, he said when he comes, he's going to get down with the towel and the basin and wash your feet. How's that going to feel? I think we're going to have a lot of mixed feelings. We're going to be like, Peter, no, please don't do that. He's going to say, yes, he's amazingly humble and grateful, God. That's right, Linda. All right. Blessed, verse 37, are those slaves whom the master will find on the alert when he comes. Whether he comes in the second watch or even in the third and finds them so, blessed are those slaves. So, I want you to just take a pause here for just a minute. Here's another part of our identity as believers in Christ we're slaves. Now, most of your English translations dumb this down because they're ashamed of of the history of slavery, rightly so. But Jesus uses the idea of slavery in 13 of his parables. It's in 140 verses in the New Testament. The word, if you can put it up there, Madison, put up the word doulos. All right, there you go. Doulos is the Greek word for slave. It's used over 140 times in the New Testament, applied to believers mostly. Why would that be? The Roman Empire was full of slavery. There were places in the Roman Empire where a third of the population were slaves. What is the point? Why is Jesus doing that? He knows that there's cruelty and brutality behind it. He's not going for that angle. He's going for the angle of you're owned. You don't have your own agenda. You don't have the right of refusal to say no to me. You are owned by me. I purchased you with my blood, right? Do we agree with that? that he bought us we're not purchased with perishable things but we're purchased with the precious blood of the lamb he bought us when he shed his blood for us and we said yes and amen we'll take your forgiveness we'll take eternal life we'll take an eternal covenant we'll take eternal sonship with you yes yes and yes he says then everything that you are and have is mine now I own you lock, stock and barrel you don't have your autonomy anymore you're mine and now my good heart Will steer your life. But you have to trust me, even though it feels sometimes like it's not good, it still is good. Slave. I I find this amazing because in English Bible translations, really for the, for the past hundred years and even the King James, they translate it as servant most of the time. And that's just wrong. It it doesn't mean that. The word do loss you don't have to put it back up there. of the time means slave. It's one who is owned. Kenneth Weiss puts it this way. It's one whose will is swallowed up in the will of the master. This is what Jesus said. The Now, this is part of our identity. I know you don't like that. But this is the safest place. To me, this is one of the most precious truths of the New Testament. No, I'm not mentally ill. Why? Because it gives me such peace and security. Well, if you told me to do this, just like with my kids. No, I want you to have more kids. Lord, no, you don't understand. I can't even make it with two. I can't, I don't have the money. to. know. I want you to have more. No, but Lord, you don't understand. i back and forth like I could do this a hundred times because this is how I did it. He's like, listen, this is what I want. I'm like, but you're not making logical sense. He's like, I don't need your logic. I'm all powerful. And he spoke to me too and said, everything that has to do with your children, I'm going to take care of it. And I'm like, say that again. Say, say, say it again. Say it again. Say it again. Because I was so afraid. I was terrified. Am not going to be able? My business is failing. That you're my third child. My third child was. I was telling my son this because he's like, Dad, I'm just not doing good. I said, Dang, you're making fifty thousand a year. You're doing great. The year my third child was born, I made the whopping sum of $15,000 that year. But the Lord never let us go without. You know what he did? He would send people to us in our deepest need. We had one Saturday night where we needed $1,500 in two days. I'm going to tell the story again because I like it, okay? Okay this is part of my history with God but this is part of your history too this is what slaves can do don't worry about what you need I'm going to provide everything you need that's not your responsibility don't take my responsibility you take yours and I'll take care of mine and so he did he goes listen God's got people everywhere that have money everywhere he's not, he's not hurting for money sometimes he withholds it because our heart's not right I've had that happen. When he started blessing my business one time after we had this knockdown dragout, I'll say with well, God, I wasn't arguing, but I was just crying mostly because he wouldn't let me quit. I begged him, let me quit, please let me quit. He's, I said it doesn't make sense. He's like, "There's your logic again. Put that aside. We're not doing that." He, I had trees on my lot. I had six oak trees and two palm trees. That's all I had. That next day after that wrestle with the Lord, guy calls up, I need some trees. What kind of trees? Oak trees. What size? I uh, like 12, 14 foot. I had six 12 to 14 foot oak trees. I said, how many do you need? He's counting on the phone. One, two, three, four, five, six. He said, I need six. Do you think you have six? I go, actually, I do have six. When do you want them in? He says, when you want to put them in. I said, how about today? Two days later, lady called. I need some palm trees. This is all I had now. My lot. What kind of palms do you need? Oh, you know those cabbage palms, sable palms. Yeah, I've got some of those. I had two. I said, How many did you need? She said, I need three. Can you do three? I said, Yeah, I've got two and I'll, I'll buy another one. When can you put them in? How about today? And the Lord spoke to my heart and he said, You see what I can do when I want to? I said, Dang, that was the problem. You didn't want to. Why didn't you want to? What was wrong? What was I doing wrong that you didn't want to? He wanted to show me that I'm not going to make this thing happen. I need to lay down what mama told me my whole life. Okay. No, I'm not going to make it happen. Lord, I'm your slave. I belong to you. Lock, stock, and barrel. Everything about me belongs to you. My family, my wife, my children. So see, that doesn't give me. I, because my wife belongs to the Lord, that means I better treat her pretty darn good. Because my kids belong to the Lord, that means I better invest in them and love them and act like I actually like them and take time to be with them and to pour out my heart about Jesus to them because they belong to him. Like this reality has made it so, so much peace for me in the most difficult circumstances where I'm like, I'll go back to this. Oh, I'm asleep. So this is on you. Let's separate responsibilities right here, Lord. Provision, that's on you. Okay? Grace, that's on you. Strength, that's on you. Willpower, that's on you. Perseverance, you give me the grace for it, I'll do that. I'll obey you. That's on me. So let's separate responsibilities here. This is on you. Now, if I'm in the MF, I'm out there doing my own thing, and I've got my own agenda, and I'm running that, then he's not. He's like, No. I didn't say I'd provide for your agenda. I said I'd provide for my agenda. But there's so much peace in that. So good. I'm in the hospital waiting to get open-heart surgery. I'm waiting. I get a triple bypass. Found I had a tons of blockage in my body. My carotid artery on the right side is 100% blocked. So that wasn't Good news. And I'm sitting there waiting, and I'm just reading. I'm just having a good time. I had a lot of time to read my Bible because it took like seven days to get the blood thinner out of my system before they could do, take out the sawzall and cut me open. And the Lord spoke to me, and he said, you know how you are because I'm this landscape guy that goes around my yard and makes notes. You know, or some, some of you probably are like that. Some of you don't give a rip about your landscape. I can tell that by looking at it. <laughs> never, never mind. <laughs> oh, never mind. So I'm making notes. He says, you know how you do that about making notes? You go around your yard and you go, on Saturday, I'm going to take care of these things. And I make that list of the five bullet points. This is what the Lord said. He, I'm telling you, the Holy Spirit spoke to me. He said, that's what this is to me with your heart. And I'm like, oh, dang, it's going to be fine then. It's going to be great. You already had this on your schedule. You weren't taken by surprise of this. I belong to you, so... I just kept telling the doctors, come on, let's get, let's get the show on the road. Let's go. Come on, get me down there. Shave me like an onion. Let's go. <laughs> I had such confidence. I mean, I felt I couldn't convey that necessarily to my wife and to my family. But I had like 100% confidence because the Lord told me, like, you're, you're my slave. This is what I'm doing. I already have this on my schedule. Like, this is on the book. Look, it's right here in my agenda. I'm like, oh, this is going to be great. Now, it was a little bit of a recovery. I'm not saying that that was fun, but I was seriously stoked when they finally said, okay, today we're gonna do it. I'm like, come on, let's get past this thing. That's, that's what you can do when you're a slave. If you're an owner, if you have autonomy, if you're running your own ship and your own business and your own life and you have an agenda and you're going to make this happen and you're the guy that's casting the vision instead of the Lord, then you don't have that peace. Then you're running nervous and under stress all the time. But if you're really a slave, life is good. All you've got to concentrate is on what do you want and when do you want it? And what do I need? Give me the supplies and the grace that I need to do it. Life is good. Living like a slave is part of being ready for the master. Wow. 39. But be sure of this that if the head of the house had known what hour the thief was coming, he would not have allowed his house to be broken into. You too be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour that you do not expect. Peter said, Lord, are you addressing this parable to us or to everyone else as well? I love how Jesus doesn't answer. And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and sensible steward? whom his master will put in charge of his servants to give them their rations at the proper time. Blessed is that slave whom his master finds doing so when he comes. So what was his answer to Peter? Yeah. Of course it applies to you. It applies to everybody. But especially if you have authority over somebody else, whatever authority I've given you, you better be found treating them right, taking care of them right, so the love is going to be on the final exam every single time. There's a lot of things that we worry and fuss about that aren't going to be on the final exam, but I'm telling you, love will be on the final exam. How did you treat my people? Listen, it is a serious thing, and I felt the breath of the Lord's hot displeasure on my neck before... Actually preaching, because I come in with a You know, I, I can get a little edgy sometimes. <clears throat> I come in with a, a thing about you know I've got the word of the Lord, and I'm coming. In, it, it's just that it's just mixed with my own solical frustration and anger. And like the Lord is like, no, these are people that I gave my blood for. You better back off your junk. He he's jealous. I live every day in this body with the realization that God is jealous over you guys. And I pray, Lord, don't help me. Don't mess it up, dear Jesus. These people are precious to you. So if we have authority, we're going to give account for how we treat those who are under our care. Whether we're parents, whether we're husbands, whether we are in ministry, whether we are leaders in any respect the Lord is going to require that from us. And so here's the thing. We need to start now. It's not okay realizing what is it to be ready for the Lord. Here's all it is. It's not complicated. It's just simply living every day in the light of knowing that very soon we're going to stand before the Lord Jesus himself and give account for our life. We're going to do that. That is a reality. We're going to give account for our life. Living that way every day takes all kinds of foolish decisions off the table. Because the question is, would you do that if you knew you were going to have to give account to Jesus tomorrow for that? And the answer is usually no. But we think somehow in our own self-delusion that we're never going to have to give account for those things. We are. He promised it. Over and over again. It's a real thing. I like these quotes from Oswald Chambers. If you know Oswald Chambers, the central point of resistance to discipleship is that I will not give up my right to myself. The very thing God intends you to give up if you're ever going to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. The best measure of a spiritual life is not its ecstasies, but its obedience. That's so good. Like, we need to hear that in charismatic circles. I love the ecstasies. I love the encounters. I love the prophecies. I love the spiritual gifts. I love the miraculous. But at the end of the day, I don't find anywhere where that's going to be on the final exam. What is going to be on the final exam is if I walked in obedience. What this generation needs, God, I'm speaking, I don't want to speak as an old man down to you, like, I get it. Who's this crunchy old guy? But I don't want to do that. But, but listen, here's, I, I've been around for a while, and so I'm, I'm observing this generation. I love you with a passion. My children are in your generation. You get it? But I do see blindnesses, and one of them is being faithful in the mundane things. Like you, you, you want this, and I'm sorry for speaking at you. I'm not trying to speak at you. But listen, this generation, we, we want the spectacular, amazing thing, the thing that's going to make the headlines, and that's going to be the powerful thing. And the reality is Jesus is going to say on that day, whatever you did to the least of these, you did it to me. If you gave a cup of water to a little child in my name, you did it to me. Oh, no, Lord, I want to have a miracle crusade in Tanzania. Well, great, do that. But don't neglect loving your child. Don't neglect giving the cup of water. Don't neglect to get down on their level and say, I love you, honey. I missed you. How are you? And look them in the eye. Because Jesus is going to ask about that. I told Jeremiah one time, Johnson, we, we were meeting. He just had this big crusade in Virginia. And, um, you know, they went over. The Lord was moving. Like they had seven, however many longer, seven nights or maybe longer than that of extra meetings. And he was telling me about it a Saturday morning. And I said, I don't know. I just felt that was the Lord. I said, bro, Jesus is not going to ask you about your meetings when you stand before him. He's going to ask you, how is Bella's soul? He was like, That's real. Faithful in the mundane. Faithful at doing our work as unto the Lord. Faithful as doing the hard things of life, of taking care of the things. Do you see the word in here? This is another part of what discipleship is. Part of discipleship is being a slave, and the other part of it is being a steward. That means we don't own. Let me give you the, the four principles of stewardship so much here, I'm going to miss, but here's four principles of stewardship, okay? Number one, the principle of ownership. A steward owns nothing and does not set the agenda. I told you this wasn't going to preach good, and it's coming true. was a prophetic word. (laughs) Four principles of stewardship. Principle of ownership. Stewards own nothing, and they do not set the agenda. So even your body... Even your business, even your whatever, even your money. Principle number two of stewardship is the principle of responsibility. Listen, owners have rights. Stewards have responsibilities. Owners have rights. Stewards have responsibilities. We have responsibilities to Jesus because we're his stewards. So what that tells me is, We use language all the time, and I know this is hard. Like, we have to go over and over this stuff because it's so counterintuitive to the culture. Everything in the culture is feeding us with this self-autonomy that we should live in, and we're going to make it happen, and it's all about us, and it's our plans, it's our vision, it's our drive, and and all that's not true. The Lord might use those things. But ultimately, as believers in Him, He sets the agenda, and He is the owner of all things. This is another burden that I carry for this generation is I feel like this whole principle of stewardship with your money is is being lost on you. I hear all the time of, well, the New Testament doesn't teach that we have to tithe. And I'm like, I totally 100% agree with you. It means you have to give up everything. Not just your 10%. But most people that say the New Testament doesn't teach tithing, they don't give diddly squat. And here's the problem. If the Lord doesn't have ownership of our heart, of our money, he doesn't have ownership of our heart. Because he said, Where your treasure is, your heart will be there also. And listen, in America, the richest country that's ever existed, we have to fight this day and night. You go, well, I'm not rich. You are if you live in America and you have a house. Even if you rent one, I'm not saying you own it. Even if you have one when a tree fell on it, you're still rich. Compare yourself to the rest of the world. We are really rich. Look. God doesn't want us to feel guilty about being rich, but he wants us to be stewards and recognize that it's not ours. So Lord, what do you want to do to further your kingdom? How can I demonstrate that you own me with this money? I don't need to go out and buy a portion, an elevator from a house and all that stuff. That, that's, that's not how I demonstrate his ownership. That's how I demonstrate that I'm, not, that I'm still on the throne. No, it's not okay. Listen, the Bible talks so explicitly about our hearts and our money. It's crazy how strong the language is in there. Can I just read you out of First Timothy chapter six? I know you didn't answer. I didn't give you time to. That's okay. First <clears throat> Timothy chapter six. I want to read these verses and I want us to take a sober look for real. I have to wrestle with this all the time. When we were poor and we were shopping at the Benton Dent, it wasn't so much because we didn't have many choices. But after my heart got right, the Lord began to bless my business, and we had a lot more. And, and, and I have to wrestle with this. I walk around my house, and if something pulls on my heart, I'm like, do I need to give that away right now? Because I don't want to be an idolater. Because the Bible says that covetousness is idolatry, and I'm not going to be an idolater. God, this is yours. I'm your slave, and you own this. 1 Timothy 6, verse 9 and 10. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. How's that sound to you? Is that not the most sobering passage you've ever heard being an American? So here's the question we have to ask yourself. I want to ask you right now do you want to get rich? Do you? Do you want to get rich? You're, you're on a slippery slide then. If that's where your heart wants to go. Now the Lord may make you rich, but here's the thing God can trust slaves to make them rich. Because He knows they realize this ain't mine. This ain't mine. What 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 do you want to do with this thing? This ain't mine folks i'm telling you i feel the fear of the lord for us as americans believers that we think we can live with idolatry and yet we're going to add jesus on and say yes praise the lord he's he's not having it what what do we view so so that's sobering do you want to get rich Even if you want to get rich through God, you're still an idolater. Now, God may make you rich if your heart's all his because he gives seed to the sower. So if you haven't practiced sowing, the likelihood is he's not going to give you seed because he can't trust you with his money. Lord, why don't I have more money for something? Well, can he trust you with the money he's given you? Like, when you made the 15000 were you giving generously as you could until it hurt? Here's the standard that we have to walk in as Americans. Now, this is not a beatdown. Look, I'm with you. I'm just trying to tell you the truth from the Scripture. You know these passages as well as I do. We just gloss over them and think, oh, that doesn't apply to me. It does. And we're going to give account when we stand before Jesus. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some by, notice this phrase, longing for it. Longing for it. And I know I've been around the church long enough where I hear the language, oh, I want to do this and make all this money because I'm gonna use it for the Lord and then I watch how it happens. No, if you ain't using what you got now for the Lord, you're a liar. You're not gonna use what you get then for the Lord. You might throw them a few bones. But is it actually on the table and you recognize this is not mine? God help us in America. They don't need this message in North Korea. But Lord knows we need it here. And listen, this isn't about heart of the Father. I couldn't care less where you give your money. But if we live in the light of eternity, we're going to recognize we're stewards of every. Dollar than we have I live in a nice house the Lord's blessed us in all kinds of ways but I live in fear and trembling and I'm like Jesus no my heart is yours this is your stuff what do you want to do with it so one thing that we do is we just go out of our way when our moms died we, we redid our apartment and make it a hospitality us people just stay there come this is, this is to, to put people up and let them stay we want to bless them because it's not our house because we're slaves and we're stewards and this is the part of the other part of the wheel that we lack in America and it's why we don't roll because all we want is to hear I'm sorry if this sounds too edgy we, we, we do we, we want to hear we, we're, we're desperate for the affirmation of the Lord and his love and his goodness and his kindness and all of that is so amazing Trust me, I'm blown away by it every day, of my life. But we have to have the whole wheel, or it doesn't roll. And here's the thing: if we start out with the foundation right, which is the fact that okay, discipleship, we signed up for the deal. Everything now is yours; it's not mine. It makes life so much more joyful, even in the hard times. It makes it more joyful. Because we know he's, he owns me. He's got me. And he's going to take care of me. So beautiful. Love of money, verse 10. We'll finish up with a couple more verses here. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some by having longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. I can't count the number of times where I have dealt with believers who were friends of mine. Who longed for money they long for it. I just want more. You, you know, that's what the word, the Greek word for covetousness is made up of two Greek words. One means have, and one means more, have more. Do you, you know there's kinds of covetousness where you want the stuff that you even have a legal right to more than you should, and the Lord says, I don't like that. Your heart's attached to it. It's, it's not right. Case in point, Luke chapter 12, if you look there, Jesus is preaching. A man stands up in the crowd. Lord, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me rightly. And Jesus says, oh, yeah, I can't believe he's doing you wrong like that. You should. No. Jesus said, man, who made me the judge over you? That's not my role here. But listen, he says, beware of covetousness in every form. It's really subtle. It morphs. Oh, no, that's mine. That belongs to me. No, you forgot you were a slave. You forgot you were a steward. It's not yours. Paul says to the Corinthians, you've taken up this offering for Jerusalem where there's drought and they're starving there. And you guys have put out this generous offering. And Paul says, I've been delayed in coming to you, but I wanted to make sure that the offering that you raised for their relief hasn't been affected by your covetousness. What are you talking about? That was our offering. We gave that. We can take it back. No, you can't if Jesus said because it's not yours you're a steward we're slaves I think the sheer numbers of the phrases in the New Testament are meant to impress us like he says a 140 times we're slaves 260 times you're disciples the other stuff is real I preached on Being in Christ multiple times in this church, I believe in it. I love it. I preach on the love of God. I believe in the favor of God, that he's 100% for us. I believe all of those things. But look, if you got one half of the wheel, you ain't going to roll down the road. And this is where discipleship happens. And you don't think that it affects everything else in your life. It does. These are all tied together. Because the root issue is whether or not we are 100% his. He goes, I'm 100% for you, but are you 100% mine? Because that's the deal that we made when you came and bowed the knee and said, Jesus is Lord. Do you know when you say Jesus is Lord, even in that day, that word Lord is the word master. And it is a slave master. I'm owned by you. When we declare he's Lord, we're declaring his ownership of us. It's pretty good preaching anyways. Thank you all for helping me to get over the fear of men. (laughs) All right, the principle of responsibility, number two. I'm I'm, I'm, going to finish up for now. Principle number three of stewardship is the principle of accountability. That, that includes our spiritual gifts. That's why we want for everybody to put in their supply. 1 Peter 4 verse 11 right, says, Whoever has a spiritual gift, let him employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the grace of God of Jesus. So whatever grace you have on your life, you might think it's awesome and it's hot and it might be amazing and you might be a prophet and all that's great, but the issue is not whether you had that gift. Jesus isn't going to say, oh, you had such an amazing gift. Come here and get the red ribbon. No, because he knows that whatever gift he gave us, he gave it to us, right? We didn't make it. How many made yourself a prophet? How many made yourself have a spiritual gift? you, You did it. He gave it as a free gift. But the way that we steward it is that we actually use it to build other people up. That's how we glorify God so that in all things God may be glorified. So whatever we have as a gift of the Lord, if we're not using it to build up other people, we're not being good stewards and we'll give account for that stewardship. Number four. Is the principle of reward. The Lord's reward is amazing. I'm gonna read this and then we're gonna close here. Colossians chapter 3, verse 23 and 24. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord, knowing this, from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. Because it is the Lord Christ whom you serve. Jesus is generous. He's generous. It's going to be amazing on that day if we walk ready. You go, well, I've got time. I'll get ready. You know you won't because if you're asleep you won't get ready. If you don't start living as a disciple and as a steward and as a slave, you're not gonna get ready at that time and you're gonna see signs and then you're gonna get ready. It's too late. Here's the deal. As believers, we live in the light of eternity and what that means is we live in the light of the moment that we're gonna stand before Jesus and everything about our life is gonna be laid open and bare. All of our heart motives. This is the motivation for sanctification, don't you see? Jesus, those motivations. So so this is what I would recommend to you. When I see things come up inside of me that are ugly, I just voice that right out to the Lord. Oh, Lord, you saw how that tweaked me in my heart. There's something wrong in there. Would you help me? What do I need to do, Lord? Do I need to humble myself? Do I need to ask for help? Do I need to just repent? What do I need to do? Sanctification is really natural when you actually are in in the mode of exposing everything. Because on that day, he's going to see everything completely clearly. And this is the beautiful way. Imagine, just in closing, I think about this. Imagine having thousands and millions of believers that live like this. What could stand before them? What society wouldn't be radically influenced for Jesus by that kind of a people? It's phenomenal to think about. We hope this message has been a blessing to you. If you'd like to join us on a Sunday morning or other weekly gathering, know that you're more than welcome. And if you'd like other resources on or about this ministry, Or for any deeper questions you may have, be sure to visit our website at hotfmlakeland.com.